Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podside, everyone. This is Carlo, and today I am joined by none other than Maddie Lewis of The Pod Hand. How are you doing, Maddie? Doing good. Glad to be back. Excellent. All right. And so um, we're going to talk about uh, a book that you had actually recommended to me uh, called Alchemy of Stone uh, by Ekaterina Sedia. Um, and this came out in what, 2008? Is that correct? Uh, yes. Okay. So, um, let's first, I guess, ask you, uh, first, when did you read this? And, uh, I guess after that, just let me know, what was it that you wanted? Like, why did you want me to read this, uh, to, to discuss? Sure. Um, so I actually, I'm pretty sure I read it like when it first came out or shortly after I was like maybe a junior in high school at the time. Um, so and I just I saw it in the bookstore. I thought, oh, the Alchemy of Stone, that's a good title. And the cover that I had was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I I was really into steampunk at the time, like I think a lot of people were mm-hmm. at that uh at that time. And I, I do not love it anymore, but I think this is like the the like shining pinnacle ideal of what steampunk could be, but usually isn't. But, um, yeah, yeah. I, I just picked it up because I saw it in the bookstore and I thought it looked neat. Um, I think it was Borders, too. Um, yeah, I mean, R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. indeed. I used to work at a Borders in Puerto Rico. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you, you judged the book by its cover and it turned out to work out well for you. So I guess that's a good thing. Uh, hooray yeah. for for hooray for good art direction on book covers that really sort of draw you in. Uh Without spoiling anything or, you know, or being or perhaps being uh, alluring and or titillating enough that uh, they make you open up the book at least. Right. Yeah. Um, So. um, So you said that you were into steampunk. Did you ever do like the the cosplay type stuff and buy yourself? Not really. I mean, like maybe a little bit for like Halloween costumes, but I was never like a, like a glue cogs to a top hat type of person. (laughs) I mostly just kind of liked the aesthetic and I thought it was, you know, kind of fun and neat, but, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, steampunk is interesting because it's, it's one of these things that seems to have like, like we're sort of joking about right now seems to have like this, um, this sort of established uh, aesthetic, which is, you know, very, I mean, I would say surface level, sort of like you're wearing a costume of sorts and it's, you got crazy goggles or, you know, like some sort of eyepieces or like the, uh, or maybe one eyepiece only like the, the guys from like um, a monocle. 
Well, or or like the uh, weird half cyborg uh, guys from um, uh, A City with Lost Children, which is I would probably consider steampunk ish, definitely. Um, oh yeah, and that, that's a that's a deep cut. I don't know many other people who've actually seen that movie. Oh man, that movie is it's awesome. Good. I, mean, I like it. I, I was just also in a, a, a Junet and Caro uh, kick because uh, I saw. I think. Um, Go, going off off topic, big surprise for this podcast. Um, I think after I found out uh, that he was the th- that was the name of the directors uh, for like Delicatessen, which I caught like randomly, like at two in the morning when I had like insomnia or I'd gotten back from like hanging out with my friends. Uh, I caught it like on HBO or something. And I was like, what the hell? I caught it right at the beginning too. So I was like, what the hell is going on here? And then it, like, it's very, it's got like a, like that style that uh, Junet and Caro had was very sort of grotesque, but also comical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a way that um, it, it's sort of like uh, if Tim Burton's designs were actually looked dangerous like you could get yeah. fucked up by it. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see that. Yeah, it, it looks like the fil- the like the sets in that movie look like a Tim Burton set you could get tetanus off of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please get vaccinated, folks. Uh, you, you don't want to get locked jaw from tetanus. Thank you. Um, but yeah, uh, it's uh, it's also funny because. Um, you know, the the aesthetic uh, leads to certain things because it's obvious that you'd only be in certain climates doing steampunk. There's no steampunk in like, you know, a tropical, you know, tropical areas. You were going to wear your top hat. It's just going to get all soggy. Now, you know, the yeah. weird thing is now that you mentioned that. Um, so every time I read this book, I know the setting is probably supposed to be more like a Victorian London kind of setting. I always, in my head, imagine it as like Andalusian Spain. I don't know why. Um, well, <laughs> you, you want to hear something really funny? And sure. maybe this is simply simply because I know that Celia is from, she's actually from Russia. Russia, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wasn't sure. I believe so. Well, she, she was she was in Russia when I believe you said that she was in Russia when when it basically uh, you know the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, uh, but, I think she was in the United States by that time, but I, I'm oh, pretty okay. sure she grew up in yeah in um, in the the late in, Soviet yeah mm-hmm. era. So I, I, knowing that, like I I always imagined this as sort of like a uh, sort of. Uh, nowhere in the world, but somehow still Eastern European type of city um, in my mind. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know. I just think because I think that the fictional city is called Iona and that sounded kind of Spanish to me. Mm. And um, the one character they mentioned, he's always hot. And that didn't seem like uh, like your typical like pseudo England steampunk sort of thing. And just like the the names of the characters kind of seem to be like from all over the place. So Mm -hmm, I I guess that's why that's where I, I, my head went to, I don't know. Um, I think it lends the book like a cool aesthetic flair in my head of, of like a, like a steampunk 
southern Spain rather than a <laughs> steampunk Victorian See, now, England. Now I'm just imagining like little automatons clacking their little cascanets and going, ole! <laughs> um, <sighs> Got to stop this. Okay, so um, let, I guess we could talk a little bit about... Um, so uh, is there anything else to... Like, it just looked cool. I mean, you you read it back then, and what... I guess what would you say uh, made you think it was, like, the pinnacle of steampunk? Um, so... As when I was, you know, reading it as a, a teenager, the thing I mostly liked was kind of the like the feminist readings of it. And at that point, like I hadn't really thought critically about steampunk really mm-hmm. as like a thing that could be maybe like kind of colonialist or otherwise problematic. So I didn't really think about that at the time. And I wasn't really like thinking about like labor rights or anything like that. So I at that point, I was more looking for the feminist subtext, and that was what interested me the most about it. And to be fair, that still is a significant part of why I like it. But as I kind of like grew older, learned some theory, went to college, I realized, oh, yeah, steampunk actually a lot of the time just kind of glamorizes a really shitty period in history because the mass scale industrialization was really bad for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um and a lot of steampunk just really glosses over that and isn't really concerned with uh, all of the labor issues that were happening in the time period. And this book actually is. So mm-hmm. what I think I like so much about it is it is a steampunk story that for one is actually punk, sort of, because a lot of them like kind of aren't. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. more like um, like fantasy of banners or. Uh, well, I mean, that to be honest kind of with you. Thing. Yeah, like if if your main character is you know Lady Froppenshire of you know of you know whatever manner, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that's not really punk, unless unless she's really being a class traitor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do find I mean um, one of the things that really stood out to me here is that. Uh, Maddie is very, I mean, Maddie is the primary character. Yeah, this could uh, get confusing. <laughs> yes, well, Maddie is an automaton that's created by uh, a mechanic. Uh, and, and to be f- clear, the city is divided basically uh, at, when it begins, it's divided between a triumvirate, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's the, the Duchy or the Dookie. The, no, du- yeah, the du- Duchy. Yeah. Duchy, I would say, because Dookie just sounds bad. Um, it's, I think it's Duchy, but it's the, the Duke and his family. Right. So them and the courtiers, the alchemists, and then the mechanics. Uh, that's the triumvirate of power. And over all of them, but not really, they're, they're not really powerful in uh, the sense that they uh, make anything happen in the city. Uh, it are the gargoyles, which is what sort of the 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 title of the the book is alluding to. Uh, the gargoyles uh, are sort of like a collective we uh, narr- uh, narrative structure or narration throughout that is interspersed throughout the book, and they are really the the original creators of the city. Like they called it forth from the stone. And so they become like an important sort of um, catalyst you know, for Maddie. I think to take- 
Go the ahead. other reason I imagined it more like a like a Spain kind of thing, because I'm imagining like the Moorish architecture, which is more stone heavy and not so much. Yeah, that, imagining, that makes sense. Like, yeah, like I, that's the kind of thing like I can visualize actually just being like wrought out of stone, not so much like the brick by brick sort of look you'd see on like a London cobblestone street or something. I'm also thinking like imagine I'm just trying to imagine because obviously like uh, the the gothic look, uh, which is you know what what is brought to mind, like the gothic style of architecture is brought to mind when you talk about gar- gargoyles, and I'm like thinking, well, what would that look like, but more sort of organic? And I'm thinking of like uh, what is it, uh, the Cathedral of La Familia, mm-hmm. uh, something like that that just looks sort of weird and grown rather than chiseled out of anything. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, so yeah, the 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 gargoyles then provide uh Maddie, which is the main character, who is an automaton. Um and they provide her with like a catalyst for getting sort of some of the plot moving, right? Right. Um, so uh and then Maddie is like her I guess her creator, I, I I hesitate to call like it's not even really a fatherly uh no it's definitely relationship not. at all um it's much more antagonistic than that uh so she's created by lohari who is one of the i think he's like one of the chief or he's one of the mechanics yeah one of the mechanics but he's one of like the chief in their party or whatever you know like one of the big shots anyway yeah he's an important guy he's not just like some some random scrub yeah and uh so yeah so basically it's this it starts off with this uh request by the gargoyles who have been slowly sort of dying off i i, I suppose turning to stone basically. yeah like they, they calcify yeah. and then but there's no new gargoyles being made uh so or they're trapped somewhere i'm not entirely sure because there's there is a sequence um further on in the book that we can get to where they sort of uh, talk a little bit about that. It, it's not clear, and it's fine because honestly, it's. It, it, I, I prefer the gargoyles to be a little bit more mysterious. I am okay with that. Um, but yeah. So, uh, do you want to go ahead and and talk a little bit about Maddie? Because I I just found her really fascinating. Yeah. So that. Um, so. Uh, this book actually is, and this particular character is um, one of my all-time favorite characters in anything that I've ever read um, in any genre. Uh, and what? So she is an intelligent automaton. She has, um, you know, she's capable of thinking. She has emotions. So she really is in my eyes, more of a fantasy construct than a science fiction one. Um, Because she does have a lot more human qualities. And she was created by Lahari, who's the mechanic that we mentioned earlier. And she has like a little winding mechanism in, um, in her chest. And he is the only key to it. So he has emancipated her. So she's allowed to go her own way. However, she needs to be rewound and he's the only one who has the key as kind of like a blackmail sort of thing. Um, 
And she has decided, even though she's, you know, grown up basically around alchemists or around mechanics, she's becomes fascinated with alchemy and trains as an alchemist. Um, and I thought that it was a really kind of neat to have this character who's kind of like in so many worlds at once. Like she's in this mechanical world, but she's in the alchemical world and she's dealing with human beings and she has human feelings, but she's not always treated as if she's human. Um, and she's, she's treated as if she's not quite human in a very similar way to how often women are treated like they are not quite human. Um, Mm-hmm. Well, and and I think that the the complicating factor there is that um, later we find out that you know, like through some other characters, that she starts sort of. Uh, well, uh, first it's Niobe who is like an Eastern uh, alchemist, uh, dark skinned, and so she's off on the eastern end of the of the city, sort of like segregated from the from the main city. Um, because they're all immigrants over there, you know, got to keep them over there. Um, and so she starts realizing that between her and, uh, Yolanda, who is like a courtier in the, in the Duke's, um, court, uh, who is also sort of in a relationship, I think it's, it's not really like, it's, it's, it's not exactly spelled out, but part of that is because it's not really that interesting to Maddie, you know, she, she notices like, oh, she's over at Lohari's house and she's sort of in a state of like, not exactly undressed, but simply just rumpled and not quite put together dress, uh, and shift whatnot. And so I guess what I'm getting around to is that Maddie hangs out with these women and even then those women treat her slightly differently. So they don't, uh, I, I get the feeling, or not the feeling, there is um, something later on in the text where she realizes, yeah, she doesn't really, she doesn't really have the respect of Yolanda and Niobe, and she suspects that, you know, they treat her somewhat better, but not quite as e- as an equal. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the issue of class is kind of a big deal in this book, too, um, because uh it's very stratified maddie is kind of like she's not poor but she's not wealthy either you'd probably call her like maybe a work- working class basically mm-hmm. uh then lahari and yolanda are much wealthier niobe's an immigrant so she's not got a ton of money but just the kind of the dynamic there is really interesting and you have kind of fugitives and refugees coming into it too. Um, It's a very, like, one of the things that I tend to not like about a lot of fantasy books is they usually focus, not all of them, but a lot of fantasy books will focus almost entirely on, like, the upper class or Mm -hmm. the military class. Mm -hmm. And what I like about this book is you have characters who are kind of working class, you have politicians, you have nobility, and you have like kind of the poor and the abject all kind of thrown together. And it makes the city feel a lot more lived in and the world feel like bigger and more complete. Yeah. 
And that's something I, 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 I don't feel like I see in a lot of fantasy, um, even, even now. Uh, and this book, it's not a long book. Like it's less than 200 pages, my, co- or not less than 200. It's less than 300 pages, my copy. It's a, you know, a standalone novel. And I feel like I get more of a sense of a setting in this book than I do in some like big doorstopper fantasy series where there's like seven books and they're all 600 pages. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree with you on that because honestly, the, that is in fact like that sort of multifaceted approach that um you do get uh like that ferment right of different classes sort of like jumbling together because they're sort of forced to to be in the same spaces together um it it really comes through uh and and it does in fact like you say uh make widen that world because you can like even though it's you know like a phrase here or a little bit of description there you know over the book the the entirety of the book you get lots of that and it really sort of makes you it leaves enough space for you to imagine also that you know oh well you know there's these types of people live here you know that type of thing and you start getting through context clues and sort of hints like a a an idea of you know what's what's going on and I mean, I, I also think that it's you know, obviously as the book progresses and things start uh, to slowly fall apart, um, it gives it also that sense of of urgency because you you start getting worried about you know what's going to happen. Yeah, for sure. Um, that dynamic there is really interesting, um, and I think too with Maddie kind of being a she's a character who can kind of like blend in in a lot of places especially because a lot of people like they don't really since they don't really think that she's a person they don't necessarily guard their words around her like they would another person so she can kind of like pick up little bits of information here and there from people who are speaking more carelessly than they would uh around someone they considered like an actual person um and I think that's really interesting too. Is her viewpoint is she's really well centered in order to get lots of different kinds of information from lots of different people. And I actually think that this is something I've seen in like reviews of the book that were negative, as they say that she's too much of an observer character and not an active character. You know that my bugbear is complaint about agency in books. Like I don't care. Um, <laughs> But I think that's actually what makes her really interesting is she is an observer. She sees all of these things. She's kind of detached from it, not necessarily because she wants to be, but because she's not allowed to be attached. So she ends up kind of more swept along with the kind of the machinations of other people than being able to forge her own path. And I think that's a really unique perspective for a fantasy or sci-fi character. Um, Cause a lot of the times you have, you know, your guy who's a, uh, a powerful noble, so he's a mover and shaker, he can do what he likes, or a soldier, and so she's got a little more, like, physical power, too, but Maddie kind of doesn't have either of those things, and I've always been a little bit more interested in stories that are about the ways in which someone's agency may be limited, 
and how yeah. you navigate that than I am about stories that are like competence porn, basically, where it's like, this is the, this is the guy who does the cool stuff and makes the plot happen. Like that doesn't really interest me very much. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I think your point, like if this was written, uh, in a more sort of, uh, in the style that you're talking about, um, it would have been basically, uh, uh, two, uh, you know, there'd be a main character, you know, it wouldn't have been Maddie. Uh, it would have been Lohari, you know, because he's the, he's not because he's a dude, but, or it would have been L- L- Yolanda, you know, for instance, um, who becomes, you know, like the leader of the resistance. And then you'd have the other, the antagonist would be, no, we need to preserve the old ways. And that would be the story. It wouldn't be this really interesting sort of almost a character study um, of, as you say, a a a woman uh, who is just so happens to be an automaton, um, and how she navigates, uh, sort of like the the existing power structures, uh, and navigates, you know, what uh, is allowed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, based on her, uh, on her station and on her. I guess what she is, right? Um, Right. And the other thing that I like about this is I feel a lot of sci-fi fantasy books will use an automaton or a golem or any kind of like construct creature and they'll have it as like a, like a direct analogy for some marginalized class in the real world. uh, So like it's, you know, it's like automatons uh, are women or uh, golems are indigenous people or something like that. Whereas yeah. I feel like this oh, resists God. this or even just like robots are the workers. I feel like yeah. this resists that classification. Um, Cause Maddie is like a thing unto herself and you actually see like, you see the immigrants who are actually marginalized for not being natives of the place. Um, you also see, uh the the very poor and the workers like my like miners i think is a big one in the this Mm -hmm. you see them too um and you see the women kind of navigating their life so she's not like a direct analog to any one thing which is Mm -hmm. kind of a peeve of mine in a lot of sff where they'll use like a construct type character and it'll just be like an immediate like oh this is one-to-one metaphor for whatever uh, yeah. marginalized group and this doesn't do that um yeah that it, that is you you were you were on the same page as i am with that one because uh that one bugs the shit out of me yeah, yeah this one it almost it's more i think in a, in a sense it's more speculative because it kind of imagines what would the marginalizations of like if we if we if we imagine that automatons that are intelligent like this can exist what would their marginalizations look like not it's not really a metaphor. Right. Even though it sometimes has like shades of it, it's not like full blown one to one. Well, I also found it really fascinating because there's a, there's a place in the book where I believe she's having a conversation with Yolanda and Yolanda sort of prods at uh, why she thinks of herself as a woman. Uh, yeah, that's very early. That's in like one of the first couple of chapters. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when Yolanda comes around to sort of, um, I forget, uh, she was looking for what was it the 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 scent of regret? Was it? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, a perfume uh, that would evoke the, the sense of regret. Yes. Um, and so they get into a conversation and it just, it was really a rather deft, uh, sort of explanation and, and extrication of, you know, what Maddie looks like, which to explain perhaps and give a little bit of context, Maddie is made to look like, uh, a woman, you know, she has like a woman, like she's got a ceramic face. That's a mask and it's, you know, made to look like a woman and she's got like a, uh, she wears a dress. I don't remember. Is she, um, is, is it that she wears dresses or does it simply, she's sort of molded in a certain way. She is molded basically in the shape of like someone who, uh, would be wearing a corset. So that's like just like the shape of her body mm-hmm. and, uh, has kind of like stays built in, but she does wear clothing okay. as well. So, I mean, but then it it sort of really uh, separates what she looks like from what she perceives as her gender. And I found that to be really sort of um, a deft way of handling it. Uh, that isn't like, it's not trying to beat anyone over the head. She's just like very matter of fact about it. She's like, yeah, I, that's what I've always considered myself. And that's that. And it's sort of like, it's sort of like, well, that, yep, that makes perfect sense yep. to me. And, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, like trying to do anything more than it really is, which is just having an, a conversation between Maddie and someone who would be curious. Um, and she explains it rather well. You know, she's like, well, mm-hmm. that's, that's who I am. And I've always thought of myself that way. So, yes, I just so happen to look exactly, you know, on the outside, I look the, the same way that I feel. Yeah, and I, that's the reason there that conversation even happens is uh, Yolanda specifically wants to work with she wants to have an alchemist basically on retainer for whatever she needs, and she wants to work with someone who considers herself to be a woman. Mm. She doesn't want to work with a guy; she wants to work with a woman. So she's kind of probing with that with Maddie because Maddie, you know, she's she's not. She's not got human sex organs, so there's not got, you know, anything there. So she might not think of herself as having any gender at all, but she does. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's it's really, it, I, I can't really stress enough, and I'm sort of overstating, I think I'm overstating it, uh, so we should probably move on <laughs> to something else. But I just, I, I was just really sort of uh, amazed at how quickly that's, sort of dealt with. And I guess to your point, it's not exactly a one-to-one, but it does feel like a very uh, almost pragmatic explanation that speaks to, you know, what we, you know, what we, some of the questions we're having right now in a fantasy setting. Yeah. And uh, for coming out over 10 years ago, that's also pretty impressive. I think it's a lot more sensitive and deft than even some stuff that I've seen um, more recently to deal with mm-hmm. gender. Right. Right. Well, I uh, I think that's probably also my, on my mind when I'm trying to sort of uh, stumble my way through, you know, how interesting that, that was to read is in fact, yes, it is sort of, you know, more than 10 years old now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and there's plenty of plenty of uh, very bad, <laughs> bad stuff that we've we've seen, perhaps even not so old, uh, regarding you know 
being insensitive about, you know, gender questions and so on. So anyway, um, so Yolanda contracts Maddie and then that puts her at cross purposes or, or sort of uh, pushes back the the gargoyles request because you know like obviously the gargoyles don't have money <laughs> so they can't pair with money or anything like that they're gargoyles uh so she takes yolanda and puts it sort of uh, prioritizes the the request and continues to do so a couple of times if i'm remembering correctly mm-hmm. um which then you know sort of uh, understandably, when she find like it's almost, I would say near the, I would say the third act is well underway when she starts sort of reengaging with the request that the gargoyles made, um, which is to find a way to avoid them dying off completely and turning to stone. So, uh, I mean, um, but before then. Uh, we do get, uh, initially some rumblings that there's, things aren't exactly, uh, in perfect. And I, I, I I also want to point out that that's, it's a plot. It's like a a good plot point, but it's also something that makes the city feel real to me that there's never, ever like a point where it's like, everyone's happy. Like, yeah, like the, no, there's not. There's always someone is not getting what they want or what they need. Um, there's it's 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 very interesting because it's one of the few fantasy books that does politics the way politics actually happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> lots, of lot meetings, of, lots of mm-hmm. meetings, lots of meetings that, that you know, just bore the tears out of everyone. And then finally, you know, like it's it's almost like everything accelerates and happens in a snap all of a sudden it's like what, right. what the fuck I, I feel like a lot of the times well you you'll hear a, about a book and they'll say oh it's got a lot of like political uh you know it's got a, like a political plot or politics in it and what you end up getting is like game of thrones nobles like backstabbing each other for personal gain or family gain which don't get me wrong like that stuff's a lot of fun and i do like it but this is more like for one it's a different kind of government because the mm-hmm. uh, the alchemists and the mechanics are basically factions in the government governance of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's, for it's the also other, like a- it's, it's bureaucratic. It's <laughs> you're you're dealing with meetings. You're dealing with elections. You're dealing with uh, you know this faction wants that. This faction wants the other. And it's not just like I want to. I want my house top dog. There are actually like concrete goals. Mm-hmm. Um, the mechanics want to make more mechanical improvements in the city. The alchemists are like uh, more traditional, but it's very interesting because I feel like at the same time, like it would have been really easy for Sadia to just like right wing, left wing and go for it. But it's interesting because in a sense, like the mechanics are like the progress faction of the city, but they also mm-hmm. suck. And yes. the, <laughs> the alchemists are kind of well, more the conservative, like traditional side of the city. And they actually suck less, the, but the they're mechanics. also not like they don't map onto it doesn't map really onto real world politics very much. It's not like here's my uh, thinly veiled GOP and here's my thinly veiled DNC or anything like that. So yeah, I think yeah. it's neat because it actually... It feels political and it works the way politics do work in the real world, but the factions aren't like neat little, um, 
uh, simulacra, I guess, of real yeah, like world pro- political proxies. No, not proxies. Of, of, yeah, that's a better word. Um, yeah, I, I, I do agree. And, and I was just going to say that the, 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 the mechanics are sort of like the tech bros, right? Oh, yeah, they're, they're a little oh, bit like the tech bros. They're, they're, they, they want to disrupt things and make things, but that, you know, that's going to make things better. And it's like, better for who? For people. It's the mechanics. Yeah, it makes, it's going to make a, it better for the mechanics. Yeah, it's very much, um, the mechanics kind of more are, seem to be more of a, uh, we're going to fix it, even if it's not broken. Um, <laughs> whereas the alchemists are a little more like, hesitant and about change they're a little more oh let's kind of keep it the way it is and neither of them are really wrong but also neither of them are particularly correct like i feel like anyone reading this book could kind of favor one side or the other for various different reasons um but it doesn't map neatly on to like Oh, if you're a right wing reader, you're gonna like the alchemists. Or oh, if you're a left wing reader, you're gonna like the mechanics. Um. Yeah, well, it's it's also sort of a funny a funny trick, right? Because like alchemy as you know, sort of like a, a precursor to modern chemistry. You know, the whole point of alchemy, like it's it's very existence is to transform one thing into another but they don't want to <laughs> change anything they really don't like no. they, they have a lot of meetings but it's mostly meetings about what the mechanics are planning next so they're very ineffectual um to a certain ex- extent they're just sort of uh positioning themselves contrary to the mechanics yes. and not uh there's no real uh, plan for seizing power or anything of the sort. And, and to be clear, um, uh, perhaps almost 15 minutes too late, they have a parliamentary system, folks. <laughs> so, you know, the Duke and then the mechanics and, and sort of, uh, if, if, I guess if you would uh, call it uh, one thing, if we were going to map it to, um, to that it would probably be like house of lords house of commons where the house of lords would probably be represented better by the alchemists uh and the house of commons would have been represented by the the mechanics but the mechanics are much more robust they're sort of a more robust party uh they they apparently have a plan and that's pretty much something that you see later on when um it's it's sort of everyone feels this uh, like Maddie's going to buy some books and she feels like a, a a tremor. And later when she gets home, she's I think she sees like a big plume of dust and gets home and is told, you know, basically she hears the news that the Ducal Palace has been basically just demolished. Mm-hmm. Like, and eventually they find out that, you know, it's been, you know, somebody used explosives to basically explode the, the Ducal Palace uh, and that the um, the Duke and his family are headed north uh, to, you know, stay away, stay away. Uh, the courtiers, the ones that are very close go with him and others that are not quite as in with the Duke, like Yolanda, uh, sadly gets left behind. So they have to figure things out on their own. 
And uh, that event sort of starts uh, starts the the process of accelerating, um, the sort of like the two political parties, uh, really the mechanics. <laughs> They're the ones that really just step up and have a plan ready in their back pocket for if and when this were to this were to happen. Mm-hmm. So you know, I guess the mechanics had. Uh, is sort of like in their back pocket had the equivalent of, you know, uh, the project for a new American century, you know, just right. ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Cause the, uh, it's pretty clear even from pretty early on in the book that the Duke really doesn't have all that much power in the city. He's kind of a figurehead. Mm-hmm. Um, and really all the power is between the alchemists and the mechanics, but the alchemists don't really have much of a plan for, much of anything particularly other than uh keeping the mechanics a little bit in check uh the mechanics on the other hand have a lot of a plan for a lot of things yeah yeah exactly right well i mean the 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 first uh the first sort of um thing that you get to see is like their caterpillars which are these weird uh long ass undulating metal things that just I'm just imagining like they 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 have uh they're called uh caterpillars because they have like these mechanical piston legs that just sort sort of shoot them along you know like they they pump up and down real quick and I guess they just sort of uh shoot along the the streets uh and that disrupts like the the regular like they have like lizards giant lizards that uh carry the you know that are like know, beasts pulling of the carts yeah. and beasts, yeah, beasts of burden and whatnot, and uh, those are sort of like set aside. You know, nobody, nobody can use the the roads now because the mechanics use their stupid caterpillars. And all I'm thinking is like, Jesus, they cars. really. Well, <laughs> no, well, that, but also like I'm thinking about those pistons and thinking of cobblestones and going like, they pulverized those fucking streets, didn't they? <laughs> they oh, just yeah. made them shit. Yeah. Can <laughs> um, you think of like um. Like having to actually like do your commute on one of those things. Like subways are pretty awful sometimes on their own and buses can be pretty awful. But can you imagine like some stupid, like pissing, like caterpillar, caterpillar contraption having to go to work on that? I'm, I'm just imagining like a very comedic uh, turn where, you know, you, you get on, you're all you know, nice, nice and your hair's combed and slicked back and you put your glasses on. And by the time, you know, like it just starts off and your glasses start rattling rattling off your face you just get off and you're all mussed up like everything's unbuttoned you know it's just a disaster you know you just vibrated all your clothes to be unbuttoned and rumpled now yeah it would just be awful honestly uh you'd also probably end up with micro fractures on your hips or something from sitting down <laughs> yeah christ what a stupid ass fucking invention but it turns out that later on the invention isn't necessarily made for uh mass transit it's made because you can just tip them on their sides basically and they're a barricade mm-hmm. uh so you know basically the the mechanics really not covering themselves with glory in in the later parts of this book. No, they, they're they're ready to rumble all the time. <laughs> yeah, like they're like, oh, you guys, uh, miners, uh, 
Yeah, we need miners because we need more coal for our contraptions. Uh, oh, all you farmers out there, well, we're going to forcibly relocate you into the mines. <laughs> it's like, why? They, they don't know how to do that. Ah, they'll figure it out. You know, they'll, they'll learn to code. <laughs> right. <laughs> ah, Christ. Uh, honestly, uh, when I was reading that, like, I, I almost felt my blood pressure go up. I was like, what the fuck, man? What is, what is their problem? And then they sent automatons to go out into the, it was like, well, you know, honestly, this is an actual good use of a fantastical, you know, like if you're going to have automatons and clockwork, um, sort of creatures, uh, of which basically Maddie is the only the only known one that is conscious. Right. Um, yeah. She, at the very least, she's the only one that shows up in the story. Really. Um, it's it's kind of hinted that there are maybe other ones. Like she's not like singular, but she's the only one in, that actually plays a part in the story. Yeah. But I mean, it, it is sort of funny because then it's basically uh, automation is a danger to the to the labor force in the city. And that causes a lot of a lot of discontent uh, among the the people who've been sent down into the mines because like why wouldn't you like you don't know how to fucking <laughs> like it's backbreaking labor first off it's just different backbreaking labor than farming and you don't know right how to but do uh, it. yeah backbreaking labor that you know how to do is a lot less bad than backbreaking labor that you don't know how to do <laughs> and, and at any moment. You could have a tunnel collapse on you. I mean, sure, your horse might kick you in the head if you're in the field or something. But once you've been doing that for a while, you f you figure out what the dangers are. You, you can mitigate risk. You know, this is just me, but I'd take heat stroke before a mine collapse. <laughs> Honestly, same. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll even take like a horse kicking me in the head. Fuck it. Uh, I, I do At have a chance quick? of well, you know, if you, you die quick and if you have a chance of surviving a mine collapse, that is very, especially with these, these assholes in charge, the mechanics don't give a shit about the, the miners, uh, except as a way to, ex, you know, basically to exploit them and get more coal for their machines. That's really the only thing. Um, and then they also uh, create like the calculator, which is supposed to be like this. Uh, it's 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 not really something that features large in this uh, story because it it's given the attention that you should give it, which is it's laughable. It's a gigantic machine that is calculating who should go into the mines for the mechanics. It's basically it's just simply like it's. It's like a tech bro algorithm. Actuary. The, well, it's it's an <laughs> it's algorithm. Like, yeah. It, it, it then it divests them of the being the bad guys in the decision. You can point at the calculator and go, "See, the machine told me to do that." Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I'm just following the calculations. You know, this um, book is uh, now that you're we're talking about all of this. I'm like, uh, you know, this book was almost kind of prophetic, and I don't think it meant to be, but here it is. <laughs> Right. A little bit. <laughs> well, but I think that that's the interesting thing about this, because once you start talking about and centering 
the uh, just basic ideas of you know who who does what work um and and what does that mean and who is trying to gain from that work right off the bat you you there's certain things that have to fall into place logically and i think that that's what we're feeling right now is just simply like Ekaterina said, yeah, just looked at, okay, so this is, you know, these people work, these people are in charge, they're going to want to try to extract more work for them. What are the things that they will try to extract from the work, basically the, the labor force? And in this case, because it's the mechanics, I mean, God knows what the alchemists would have been asking them for if they'd, they'd had a plan in place, but the mechanics just want coal to run their, their machines. And it's sort of like uh, it's almost um, it's algorithmic. I, I would I hesitate to use it again, but it's algorithmic thinking or bubble thinking, right? Mm-hmm. What happens when you mine all the coal, or every everyone that's a miner dies off? What happens then? <laughs> it's not the problem of the the mechanic having that idea right now, though. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that uh, once you start sort of thinking about who works and who doesn't and who tries to extract value out of that work, a lot of stuff sort of starts falling into place just logically. It's right. It's like our friend uh, Kurt, who uh, <laughs> who had his discussion with uh, Richard Morgan of, uh, you know, the the um, shit. What is the name of that uh, series? Uh, the one that had the Netflix deal. Anyway, and he had written things in such a way that look, it's it just logically story wise, you'd have to make a story about sort of capitalist exploitation. And he's like, no, no, that wasn't what I was trying to do at all. And you're like, okay, you were not very smart. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, so do we want to go ahead and um? get to the end because honestly this is probably uh, I'll, I'll just say this throughout the book uh and i think we've we've sort of touched upon this um regarding maddie's personality and the way the book is written there's a certain it's not exactly uh pessimism there is there is a certain melancholy uh regarding you know how things are um and that's just to say that this is not a book that ends sort of like on a on an individual triumphal note no this is not a a Katniss Everdeen sort of you know Maddie doesn't step up and lead the revolution and kill the bad guy and uh, Maddie does not Maddie There's not really not- even a conventional villain in this story, really. Like, the closest you would get to one is maybe Lahari or Yolanda, but they're not really villains. They're just people with uh, with their own conflicting motivations. I don't think that there's any character that you point to them and be like, oh, this person, they're totally bad and they're evil and they're the cause of everything that's wrong. It's a story where the villain is not any individual human or person or entity, it is actually the systems that are in place, which Mm -hmm. I think is really interesting because that is, I think, pretty rare in fantasy, at least in my experience with it. And and maybe not as much in science fiction, but I don't read as much science fiction. So I'm not sure. But in fantasy, I find that 
the villain is the system is a very kind of rare sort of story. I don't see a lot of them. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it is not an, uh, a, not a triumphalist story at all. I wouldn't say that it's, I wouldn't say that it's a nihilistic story either. Um, but it is, it is pretty bleak. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, you know, to your point, yes, Maddie does not become a girl bot and, you know, you know, managed to quell the revolution and bring you know, everyone, everyone's peace and happiness and everyone lives happily ever after, including Maddie. Um, uh, through, like I'd say from the midpoint of the book onward, you realize that Lahari um, has also used Maddie in an unorthodox way in storing certain things inside her uh sort of like her workings that uh is pretty gross um yes uh but to your point like he this is i mean he is sort of a bad person in the sense that he holds power over maddie and uses her um and and does not really view her as a person with boundaries that should be respected. He made her. So, um, yeah, he's like the bad dad and bad boyfriend, like rolled into one kind God, of God. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and so, uh, it, it is sort of, uh, it, it just made me feel like it made my skin crawl when he, he pulled out like her eyes, like he'd used And that's not something that she'd mentioned a couple times before where, uh, as a punishment, he would take out her eyes. Like he would just disengage the mechanisms and take the, the, the bulbs out and just hide them. And it was like, Jesus Christ, man, that is awful. Why, why would you do that? <laughs> And it, I mean, even like, I, I, I suppose I could get it. Like, he's like, oh, well, I, w I need to fix him. You know, I, I need to replace right. him. But, you know, you don't have like a spare set of eyes around just to, you know, just set her. Nah, fuck it. Uh, but, but, you know, those are the times when he's trying to fix the eyes. Uh, there are, t there are times that he'd used it to punish her. Um, and so he basically had, uh, planted some sort of surveillance, uh, like basically cameras like camera. in her eyes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he basically is able to replay a bunch of her memories and uh, that helps the, the mechanics. Like he takes that information back to the mechanics where they then can use that information to try to uh, head off the rebellion. Right. Um, and, and that also, whole, that, that whole scene is so like, where he just takes out her eyes and she has no idea she's been used in this way. And it's, there's a lot in the book in that scene. And also a couple scenes earlier that kind of, um, they touch on like, what, what would a violation be to a non-human mm -hmm. and uh, like of bodily autonomy? What would that be? And like the fact that he has her key and she can't wind herself up, so she has to rely on him. That's something like that. Then it's very private to her. Like, it's kind of almost discussed in, like, sexual terms. Um, actually, explicitly at one point. Uh, mm -hmm. And 
just like not having control over that. So I think that's one where you can kind of look at it with a, a bit of a feminist bent that 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 does happen if you are reliant on someone else because they've made you reliant on them. But just there's also like a sort of creativity to like, okay, well, um, what would be what would be a violation and putting parts in someone that they don't know what they do and that kind of thing. And it's not that it has a perfect, again, it's like a lot of things in this, it doesn't have a perfect one-to-one correlation with anything in real life. It's not like an allegory, but there are a lot of things where you see like shades of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do, I do agree that it's not, it's not supposed to be a one for one. It's supposed to be, you know, it's, it's a fantasy world. You know, Maddie is a, an imaginary, like a fictive, uh, creation, but she, you know, is real within the pages of the book. And while I'm reading it, and like you say, I think that, uh, Celia is good at uh, describing what is happening within the context of that world and letting you sort of, draw your own conclusions as to what she means by that. Right. Yeah. And this Uh, is actually one of the things I think is so strong about the book is um, the imagination is very strong. Like this is a fictional world that really doesn't feel like it's a one-to-one for any real place. Um, Like you and I both had very different ideas just of what the city was exactly like. Um, So it's not like clearly this is London or clearly this is, Paris or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has that kind of imaginative. Then the mechanics and alchemists don't really match perfectly to like any existing political party that I'm aware of, at least. Uh, the issues that Maddie deals with as an automaton don't really match perfectly to any one marginalized group, though you can kind of read into or relate to with whatever speaks to you. And the book just, it doesn't really give you answers. It doesn't really say who is correct or who is good or what the proper say, balance of tradition and, and progress ought to be. It, it doesn't, it doesn't give you answers, but it asks a lot of questions. And that's so refreshing to me because I feel like, especially more recently, a lot of things are like, we're going to give you the answer. We're not going to let you make it up on your own. We're going to, we're going to tell you how it is. And Coming from, like, especially reading short fiction, like, uh, a lot of the short SFF that I've read, it's so very much, like, intent that the reader never interpret it in the wrong way. And this Mm -hmm. isn't like that. And it's so refreshing to read a book that asks more questions than it gives answers. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I tend to agree. I, I think that you're absolutely right on that. And that there is a you know basically by the end it it ends on a on a downer note but there is it's sort of like the the end of pan's labyrinth right where it's a downer but there's that hope that maybe it's not very strong but maybe mhm uh but yeah, I, I I agree. I think that this is honestly it's a, it's a book that um, I'm I'm super glad that you pointed it out to me, and you gave me an excuse to really get into it because uh, I'll I'll be honest, like steampunk is not my thing. Uh, 
in part because most everything that I've seen uh, regarding steampunk is usually, like we said, sort of like surface. Almost, yeah, just very surface level, um, sort of uh, comedy of manners, uh, you know, sort of adventure tales, um, pulpy type stuff, which is, you know, pulp is fine for what it, it is. It can be fun. But it can be fun, but, but it's, it's, you know, it's only one or two modes that steampunk could get into, right? Sort of a travelogue mode or adventure mode, right? Uh, that type of thing. Um, I and this know. is not but, that at all. So this is what's so exciting to me about it because it takes some of the – it does what I think steampunk should do mm-hmm. and usually yeah. doesn't, which is it It takes, you know, uh, inspiration and some aesthetics and some issues from that kind of like mass industrialization era. And actually it doesn't like – you know, it's not just we're going to paste some gears on a standard adventure story and it's going to be nice and clean and cozy and tidy. It is very much grounded in this is what things were actually like for people or would be like for people who live in this kind of setting. And it sucks. It's not actually good <laughs> in well, a I lot mean, of I ways. Think, I think as as you're saying that, I, I, it got me thinking and I think... Part of the disconnect I've felt, uh, with very few exceptions, this being one of them, with steampunk, is that in general, it's written almost as a, with an ironic detachment, where it's assumed that the technology was the, that the technological advances of the Industrial Revolution were the right way to go. And that in and of itself then is a conver- – it's sort of like a thought-killing experiment because then right. you you can never really examine, you know, why were these struggles happening? You know, why were children <laughs> considered uh, not – you know, not – they shouldn't be working, you know, that type of thing. And if you come from this idea of you know, sort of like this – You've reaped the benefits of the Industrial Revolution without ever really having to live it. Right. Um, It feels many times like a corrective almost to the past um, of, well, we're going to have this. this, It has superficially has the aesthetic of this time period, kind of. um, But we're going to, you know, gloss over the labor issues that were like running rampant pretty much every city as it industrialized, we're going to run over the issues of class. We're going to run is- over the issues of gender, of race, all of these things. We're just not going to think about them. We're going to just put some cogs on it, which I don't think is very interesting most of the time. If mm-hmm. like, if the basic plotter characters of the story are pretty charming and would be charming, like kind of regardless of the setting, I can still enjoy it. But if you want to do steampunk as more of like a real genre and less of just like an aesthetic. I think you actually kind of have to reckon with, well, what are problems that this type of like society, this type of technology level, this, this type of setting actually like logically, what problems would there be? What issues would there be? And I think that's a much more interesting way to do steampunk. Um, Plus, like I think I said earlier, a lot of steampunk stuff just kind of 
just tosses the punk aside and it, it's not countercultural or revolutionary or radical in any way. It's mostly fantasy of manners about cozy upper crust people maybe going on adventures or doing some science, which doesn't really interest me all that much. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, Especially I mean, I, not I, now as an adult. It might have interested me more when I was like, you know, 15 and first kind of get or 14 or 15 and first kind of getting into steampunk as like an idea. Like it was, you know, the look of it was cool, but uh, I'm less shallow than I was when I was 14 or 15. <laughs> and I kind of want want my fiction to have give me something to actually sink my teeth into and to think about real issues and how those would be integrated into a fictional world. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and I think that we, we've touched, we, we've talked about it here already, but yeah, a lot of those steampunk uh, stories do not reckon with, okay, so you made this great, you know, this great uh, mechanical thing that's supposed to do this work. Who is displaced by that? Who is not eating tonight because of that machine now? Mm-hmm. This and this book actually, I don't think it gets super in in depth with it, but at least it it is something that is considered and is part of the background um, that uh, affects Maddie in certain ways. And I think that that's, I mean, honestly, that's an accomplishment because it, it, there is so much steampunk out there that is not about that. Um, so anyway. Uh, I would probably agree with you, Maddie, that this is a book that you should probably go pick up. It's a uh, a rather cracking read. Uh, yeah, I it's very it. fast paced. It doesn't take long. Um, I actually the uh, which I haven't really talked about the aesthetics of language in this book are phenomenal. It's the writing is very beautiful, but it's not overworked. It's not particularly ornate or baroque. It reads very quickly. But um, it's very descriptive without using a ton of words. So I think the language of it's really beautiful and uh, without sacrificing clarity or without sacrificing ease of reading. Um, it's not very long, which is nice, especially if you're like me and you're sick of like going into the sci-fi fantasy section of your local bookstore and every book is like 600 plus pages in part of a series. Um, <laughs> and honestly, I think it's criminally underrated. This did not get very much attention. It's actually kind of hard to find copies of now. A lot of them you're going to have to get secondhand. I think you may be able to get them print on demand. Yeah, um, it- it it's only, not easy to find. Yeah, it, it's weird because it it only. I mean, I I think that um, it only got nominated uh, uh, for the James Tiptree Jr. Award. Now the otherwise, um, and got onto the Locus Recommend Reading List for two thousand eight. But other than that, nothing. Yeah, uh, I mean, and it, it's. I almost wonder if it was like too ahead of its time with the issues it deals with, if it might've been received better, if it had been published now. Um, but at the same, at the same time, I can also see how it would have never gotten published now. <laughs> mm, well, yeah, I mean, uh, and it, it, yeah, it got, uh, onto the locust list for the fantasy novels. Um, although I will say that, um, 
there was this interesting uh, interview or not interview, a review by Annalie Newitz over at IO9 where um, they were talking about uh, that Maddie, they were making the connection that Maddie was a robot, which I mean, I guess if you wanted to, I mean, if you wanted to make that stretch, it's, it's very clear that she's not. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like with this book, you could, I feel like if you wanted to, you could make an argument that it's more sci-fi than fantasy, but t- to me, steampunk in general always feels more fantasy than science fiction. I don't know if that's just my bias towards, oh, if it's set in the past or something that looks like it, it's fantasy. If it's set in the future or something that looks like it, it's sci-fi, which I know is like a very reductive way to look at it. But- um, excuse me, Frankenstein <laughs> is science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but Frankenstein was written... When it was, it's yeah. only the past hey. now. <laughs> it was written in the present. Yes. <laughs> no, I, I'm just, I'm just, because honestly, uh, Frankenstein is one that is, it's sort of, um, if we can go briefly on a tangent before we probably wrap up, uh, Frankenstein is interesting because to your point, it was written at the time that it's sort of happening, but also, uh, it, it lies at this confluence of different genres. It just sort of goes to show that the genre classifications are kind of not, it's only recently that I think that they've uh, sort of calcified uh, and, and really the classifications are, are selling uh, tools for selling things, mm-hmm. um, selling books that have reverberated back onto the, the sort of like the writers and then they shoot for those particular genres, right? Uh, because right. it's easier to sell if it's simply sci-fi or simply fantasy, but to to my earlier point, Frankenstein is horror, gothic, and science fiction. Uh, and there might be something else that I'm missing, at, at the very least, those three. Uh, which just goes to show that, you know, those those genre class classifications are really sort it's, of silly. The way they are now so much is it, it really is marketing. Um, I would probably say if I was a... And I have been a bookseller, but if I was a bookseller and I worked in a bookstore and I was given the choice, do you shelve this in fantasy or do you shelve this in science fiction? I would have a really hard time because I don't know who would like it more with Mm -hmm. some books where it's, you know, maybe questionable. It tends to be by the type of character archetypes that it has or the plot structure or the themes or dare I say it, the tropes, it becomes easier to tell which one goes one way, which goes the other. I would probably have a hard time with this. My gut instinct says fantasy, but that's only because I like this book and I like fantasy better than I like science fiction. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. I will uh, just say, go read it. Or whatever genre it actually is. It doesn't uh, matter. Whatever genre it is, it's a good damn book and you should go read it. It's a great read. Uh, I I uh, honestly, I read it very quickly. I enjoyed the hell out of this book. Thank you, Maddie, for giving me an excuse to read this book and to talk about it. Uh, Maddie, tell me about, I hear that you're part of a pod hand. Is that correct? 
That is correct. That is uh, myself and my friends JR and K uh, host a podcast that should have episodes coming up pretty soon here. We got a little uh, thrown off track by holiday things and um and that is a podcast we are doing a reread of kentaro Miro's berserk as well as discussing various um books movies etc that are kind of in a similar vein to berserk we're kind of the goal is to situate berserk within the kind of fantasy canon because um, we all really believe that it's that important. It's that great of a work. So the pod hand, you can check us out there. Um, I'm going to plug my friends too. If you want to check uh, their Twitters, JR, you can find him at Corgi Hell on Twitter. And he is like top tier, one of the best shit posters you will ever see. Just absolutely S tier. And then K is on Twitter at Goblin Nun. He also has a podcast called Grimoire Nights, which is a horror audio fiction that may be of interest to some of you. It's great stories. Um, and I'd encourage you to check their, their work out as well. You can find me on Twitter at Devil's Doorbell underscore. Um, I'm not as funny as JR and I don't have as much... Uh, to listen to is K, but I got some hot takes sometimes, and every now and again I post something kind of fun. <laughs> you're, you're usually much more reasonable, so at the very <laughs> least, you have very good takes that are well thought out. Let's put it that way. I try. Uh, not, I try yeah, not to be not, too incendiary. <laughs> yeah, not not that JR and K don't have good takes. It's just simply that I do believe that yours are very well thought out. And generally, yes, the well-measured and not incendiary. Uh, JR, well, you know, <laughs> he likes to shoot from the hip. Um, so. Uh, no, I'm the sniper rifle. JR's the shotgun. <laughs> well, that. <laughs> You know, I, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, um, Maddie, thanks for coming back and talking. Thanks about for this. having me. I'm so glad that you agreed to talk about this book because I like cannot stress how much I love it. If I had to pick a single book that was most formative for me as a writer, if I could only pick one, it actually might be this book. So I'm so glad that I got the opportunity to talk about it with you. Wow. Not Phantom of the Opera? This book? No. Yeah, this one. I mean, Phantom of the Opera has a, has a deep um, thematic resonance with me. But in terms of craft, it's this one. All right. I'll, I'll take it. I'm more, I'm more or less just ribbing you there because that's... <laughs> I know that Phantom of the Opera is a big thing for you. All it's, right. It's very big. Yes. All right. Well, um, I do want to thank everyone for listening in. Go read this book. And we'll catch you next time here at Podside. Bye. Bye.